As Jake, our elder, mentioned earlier this morning, Wednesday started at Lent, the season of the church that is focused on repentance, it is focused on fasting, it helps us really get down to the needs that we have, that we've created for ourselves by our sin, that Jesus met through his death and his resurrection. So Lent is 40 days leading up to Easter, Jesus' victory over sin and death. And this morning, we're beginning something as well. We're starting a new sermon series looking at prayers of repentance contained in Scripture. Since this is a season of repentance, we thought it'd be appropriate to look at specific prayers of repentance. And it's really helpful that the Bible records for us these prayers of repentance because repentance is hard. Even just admitting that you've done something wrong is hard. But then when you add into that equation the fact that you have to go to a perfect holy, all-powerful God, and tell him that you've done something he told you not to do, that makes it even harder. Add to that the fact that you don't get to see God's reaction. You just have to trust that he responds the way he says he will. That makes it even harder. And so I find what that means is I just sometimes don't repent. I assume that God is taking care of my sin through Jesus' death, and I don't say anything about it. Or if I do, it's a simple grade school, I'm sorry, right? As we look at these prayers of repentance found in scripture, what we see is that God is inviting us into an incredibly deep understanding and brokenness over our own sin, a change in our heart from uh, ignoring it, covering it, glossing over it, to turning away from our sin and turning to God, not just saying sorry, but complete life change. And the amazing thing is that God always meets repentance with forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so this sermon series is a sermon series about life change. How does a deeper understanding of our sin bring about change in our life? God gives to us freedom. He gives to us joy, his grace and mercy through the death and resurrection of his son. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at over the next couple of weeks. And this morning we're starting with Job's prayer of repentance. Now, I know many of us don't know the the story of Job, all the details about who Job was and what happened to him, and I'll try to fill in some of those facts throughout the sermon, but as we hear these passages read this morning, I want you to ask yourself this, how can you tell that Job is actually sorry? What is it about his words that communicate regret over what he has done? These are the words of the Lord coming to us from Job chapters 38, 40, and 42 this morning. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for another opportunity to hear from you this morning. Uh, But in all honesty, it's a little intimidating to know that we're going to be talking about our failure. 
spending a lot of time looking at how we've messed up. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to us to give us comfort, to give us strength, knowing that you are always faithful to your people, that those who come to you in repentance receive grace, receive mercy, receive forgiveness through the blood of your son. I ask that that would give us strength to be honest with ourselves about who we are and what we've done, to be honest with you, that we might be changed by the truth of the gospel. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. I pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. In 2006, the World Cup final was between Italy and France. Now, we're talking soccer, just to be clear. Uh, Throughout the entire match, two players had been kind of uh, jawing at each other, talking smack, pushing each other around, tripping each other. France's Zinedine Zidane and Italy's Marco Materazzi, tripping each other, tackling each other. Materazzi was pulling on Zidane's jersey. Now, there's this tradition in many sports that after uh, the game is over, after everything's done and finalized, that uh, players from opposing teams might exchange jerseys with each other as a show of respect, a show of sportsmanship. And so at one point in the middle of the match, when Materazzi pulls Zidane down by his jersey, in a a brash, egotistic response, Zidane says, if you want my jersey, we can trade for it after we win. That's a good one. Matarazzi responded with an incredibly inappropriate slang response slur against Zidane's sister, and it changed their conflict. As soon as those words came out of Matarazzi's mouth, Zidane turned and lowered his head and headbutted Matarazzi right in the chest, knocking him off his feet to the ground. It was intense. And it was so big because Zidane was shown a red card. He had to leave the field. France had to finish the match with 10 men against Italy's 11. And then when they tied at the end of the game, Zidane, arguably the best player on the field, was not able to participate in the shootout, effectively handing Italy the World Cup trophy. Once the the conflict was made personal, once it got real, things intensified. And what we see in Job's prayer of repentance is that repentance itself is real in much the same way. It's personal. It's intense. It's done face to face. And often it's that realness, that intensity that causes us to shy away from actually repenting. But what we see here in Job's prayer is that the intensity of repentance is actually matched by the intensity of God's forgiveness and his grace, and that should give us strength to enter into an attitude of repentance over and over and over again. You see, Job utters this prayer in the midst of incredible suffering. Job was uh, probably the most prominent man in his country, us, right? Job had much material wealth. He had flocks and herds of all kinds of species. He had many, many, many servants, and he was a great family man. He had many sons and many daughters. And then, in the blink of an eye, everything was taken away. All of his flocks and herds were either killed or stolen. All of his servants, except for a few, were killed. And in a freak accident, all of his children were all killed when the house they were in was demolished. On top of that, Job's own health was taken from him. He was covered head to toe in open, festering sores. And following the protocol of the day, in the midst of his mourning, Job tore his clothes 
and he sat down in ashes to weep. This is when Job's friends show up. They come and they try to speak wisdom to him to bring him some comfort in the midst of his suffering. They say, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned somewhere down the line. Why don't you just repent of that so that God will be like happy with you again and then he'll bless you and he'll take you out of this suffering. Well, the problem is Job hadn't done anything wrong. In fact, Job is described throughout the book, including by God himself, as a man who is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. He hadn't done anything wrong. So he ignores the advice of his friends. Then Job's wife comes and she tries to comfort him, to provide comfort for him by getting him out of his suffering by saying, is this really worth it? Is keeping your integrity worth it? Is, is your religion really worth all of this suffering? Just curse God and die. Be set free from this suffering. Job knows that that's foolishness too, and so he ignores her advice as well. And he does something that could be incredibly strong or incredibly stupid, depending on how you decide. He chooses to stay in the suffering, to literally sit in the midst of his pain and suffering. And as far too many of you know, when you are in the middle of suffering and it seems like there is no way out, you begin to question. You ask questions like, why is this happening to me? What have I done to deserve this? Where could I have done something different to have avoided this situation? Maybe even asking, why would God allow something like this to happen to me? And it's in the midst of his questioning that Job wanders into sin. Those questions to Job come into judgments. He looks at his own life and he says, wait a minute, I haven't done anything wrong to deserve this. I am a man who is blameless and upright. I fear God and I turn away from evil. I don't deserve what's happening right now. God must have messed up. And so he demands an audience with God to prove himself right, to help find comfort by showing God where he is right and God is wrong. Well, Job's friends came and made a few speeches. Job's wife made a speech. Job himself has a couple of speeches and then God shows up. And God makes a speech and he calls out Job's sin. He accuses Job of putting himself in God's place. He says, you think that you're God. And Job responds in repentance. And what we see is that for 41 chapters, it feels like God is incredibly distant from Job's plight, far away and uninvolved. But then when Job is in the middle of repenting to God for what he's done wrong, they come face to face. It's incredibly intimate, incredibly intense. And what we see in Job's repentance is that you have to say what you've done. You have to see who you've hurt. And you have to stay and be comforted. Those are the three things that, that we're going to draw from Job's prayer of repentance this morning. You have to start by saying what you've done. Now that might seem like an obvious place to start, right? You're thinking, well, Stephen, we're talking about repentance. It's just apologizing. So, of course, I have to say sorry but I'm never gonna get away with that, so I have to say sorry for something, right? I gotta say what I'm done. Well, the backbone of Job's prayer in verses three and four are him actually receiving God's accusations and saying, yep, you're right, I did that. But he goes deeper, he doesn't just leave it there, right? It's God who said, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? It is God who said, hear and I will speak and I will make it known to you. Job repeats those accusations, and then he adds this in verse three. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
Job says, you're right. When you told me I did this, I did that. When you said I did that, I admit that I did that. True, deep repentance requires admitting your sin specifically. Don't get me wrong. God hears you when you say sorry and move on. God hears that apology and he forgives you for that. But if you want a real, life-changing understanding of God's grace and his mercy, if you want to experience the height of God's forgiveness, the only way that you can experience that is by understanding the depth of your sin. Right? The way up is down. If you've ever taken our Intro to Grace class, you know at the bottom of one of our pages, there's a graph that talks about how we come to an understanding of God's grace and mercy. Right? And it has two lines that kind of go in opposite directions. Right? The bottom line is an understanding of the depth of your sin. The top line is an understanding of God and his grace and his mercy and his character. Right? You can't have one without the other. If you come to start understanding more about who God is, you start to understand that you're not him. And so you understand your sin more. As you come to see the depth of your sin, what you realize is that God is far, far, far above who you are. And what's amazing is in the gap between these two lines is the cross of Jesus. The only way that we can be brought from the depth of our sin up to where God is, is through the cross of Christ. That's what we see here out of Job's prayer, a deep, specific understanding of our sin. Because specific, specifics, excuse me, indicate understanding, don't they? Michaela, our six-year-old, loves gymnastics. She's been doing gymnastics for only a couple of months, taking gymnastics classes for only a couple of months, and she does gymnastics everywhere. Cartwheels, handstands, backbends, all the other gymnastic-y things that I don't know the names for, she does them everywhere in our house all the time. And she's got this uh, evaluation coming up. It's kind of like a a recital where they get you ready in case you want to go on and do competitions. And we wanted to build some confidence in her by having her practice the routines that she has learned at home. But she gets embarrassed in front of us, and she doesn't want to do it. She feels on the spot. And so we figured out if we ask her to teach us how to do the routines, we build some confidence in her. So the other day, Nicole stands up on our practice balance beam that we've got on home. It just sits right on the floor, like an inch off the floor. And she says, Michaela, will you teach me how to do your routine? And she's trying to mimic all the steps she's seen Michaela do. And Michaela says, stop, mommy, get off the balance beam. You don't get to start on the balance beam until the judge raises her hand, then you salute, and then you may stand on the balance beam. And then she proceeds to instruct Nicole very specifically on how to do the routine, all of the tiny little details. And it communicated so clearly, I know what I'm doing. I've got this down, right? Specifics indicate understanding. If we want to really understand our sin, we need to get specific with it. That's why you heard Jake this morning read a prayer of confession corporately together, and then every week we say, let's spend some time making that personal, confessing our individual sins to God. In order to confess specifically, we have to know what we've done specifically. And in order to know what we've done specifically, we, like Job, must listen. We have to listen. God tells us in his word how he wants us to live And that helps us know where we failed to live as he calls us to live, right? Jesus summarizes the law, how we should live, with two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself, which means we fail to live as God wants us to live by failing to love God or failing to love others. 
which means when we fail to love God, we have to understand how he says we failed. So if you fail to keep the Sabbath day, to set one day aside for worship and rest, trusting that God will take care of you, you can say sorry and move on, and that's okay. Or you can go to Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20 and read the fourth commandment and use that to help be specific with your confession. God, I confess that I have not remembered the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I have not set one day aside in seven in order to rest and enjoy and worship you. Right? The same is true when we fail to love other people. We have to listen to them when they tell us how we've messed up. So if someone comes to you and says, you hurt me when you talked about me behind my back to those people, you can say sorry, and it might cause everything to go away, might gloss over the problem. But what we see is an invitation to be specific, to use the words that they have communicated to us when we repent. I am sorry that I've hurt you when I spoke about you behind your back to those people. Deep repentance requires a deep understanding of our failure. And deep understanding requires specificity. And specificity requires listening. And the best way to listen to someone is to look them in the eyes when they're talking to you. Not only do you say what you've done, but you also have to see who you've hurt. Now, this is beyond the shadow of a doubt, the cringiest part of repentance, isn't it? It would be so much easier if we could just text people we're sorry and move on, right? We don't even like to talk to people on the phone, much less face to face, right? Shame is a function of the eyes. When we mess up, when we hurt someone, we feel like we have been exposed. Our inner self, the bad parts of who we are, have come out and we've been seen for who we truly are. And so having to look the person we've hurt in the face only compounds the pain, only compounds the awkwardness, the intensity. When I was in middle school, I used to ride my bike down the street to my friend Philip's house, right? And the guy who lived behind Philip had a pool in his backyard and it was covered by this big screen. This is Florida, everybody's got a pool, everybody's got a screen over their pool. One of the things that Philip and I used to do was pick up the oranges that fell off of the tree and try to throw the oranges over the fence onto the screen and get them to, to stay instead of rolling off of the screen, just stay up there. One day we figured out that the higher you threw the orange, the higher it bounced off the screen. And so I picked up an orange off the ground and I threw it as high as I could in the air and I watched it come down and it didn't bounce. It went right through the screen and into the pool. And immediately in my, the pit of my stomach, I knew I've messed up. <laughs> I've done something really bad and I felt terrible. But what felt worse was when Philip's dad walked the two of us around to the other street and made us knock on the door and look this guy in the face and admit, we busted the screen over your pool. It felt so much worse to look him in the face, right? And yet, this face-to-face interaction in the midst of guilt is what drives Job's repentance. Verse five, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. By all accounts, we don't see God show up and and reveal himself physically to Job, right? He doesn't show up like a, a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire as he did to Israel. 
He doesn't show up like a burning bush and speak to to Job personally like he did to Moses or reveal his glory, the back of his glory like he did to Moses. He doesn't show up like an angel or a strong man and wrestle with him like he did to Jacob. All it says is that God shows up and speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, right? He revealed himself to Job through words. What's amazing is that, that this Hebrew word, I, can also carry this connotation of mental or spiritual faculties, right? So in my mental ability, I see you is what Job is saying. He's saying, I thought I knew you, God. I thought I had an understanding of who you were, but now, because you have revealed yourself to me, because you have told me what is true about you, I see who you really are. I have come face to face with the real you. I know you now. Right? For Job, his knowledge was connected to God's sovereignty. Job had said, I know better than you. I didn't deserve this, God. You've messed up. Let me prove to you how you've messed up. Well, then God shows up and he begins to tell Job all about the grandeur of his creation, how big and how vast it is, and the minute details also that God is in charge of. And God says, Job, can you judge that? Can you care for that? Can you be the ruler and govern over such things? And Job says, I understand now. I see you for who you really are, and I was wrong. Sure, you might say, that sounds helpful for God to reveal himself in such a way. But I don't see a tornado appearing on my driveway talking to me. God doesn't speak to me like that. Well, hear these words. The author of Hebrews, Hebrew chapter 1. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. If you want to know how you've messed up, how you've really sinned, look at Jesus. Look to Jesus, in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. This is God incarnate. And guess what? He has a lot to say about how we live. If you want to know exactly how you've sinned, turn to uh, Matthew 5, where Jesus begins to talk about the law. And Jesus says, has these disputations, where he says, you've heard the law say this, but I tell you that, right? And each time he says, I tell you this, he amplifies the requirement of the law to a place where we cannot fulfill it. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you hate someone in your heart, you're a murderer. Well, that's not very encouraging, Right? But it's true. It's that same awkward tension of seeing God, the person who we've hurt, face to face. But here's the awesome thing. We can't look at, if we're looking to Jesus for an understanding of how we failed, you can't help but notice how he deals with failures like you and me. With grace, with mercy, with forgiveness. See, these two things are at work in Jesus' life on earth showing us what it looks like to keep the law perfectly. He obeyed every single letter of the law to its fullest. And part of that is for us to look at and go, that's not me. I haven't done that. I'm a sinner. But the other thing that is at work in Jesus's life on earth is the fact that he makes it to the end and he takes on the penalty that your sins deserve. And he extends to you the reward that he earned through his obedience. Right, two things at work in the life of Jesus that you have to look at and see when you look at him in the face. You have to look at his life and see, as the author Jack Miller summarized, you are far more sinful than you could ever know, but cheer up because you're far more loved than you ever dared hope. 
you have to look at the face of the person you've hurt. And what we see in the face of Jesus is perfect obedience that looks nothing like your life and perfect grace that is for you through his death and resurrection. And that should bring you comfort. You have to say what you've done, you have to see who you've hurt, and you have to stay and be comforted. Now, Job's friends and wife wanted for Job what we all want in the midst of suffering, right? An exit strategy, some way out of the darkness that, that he is experiencing right now, back to a place of comfort and peace, right? And it might be easy for us to look at repentance as a vehicle to that same place. Okay, so I've, I've got this, this pain in my life, this suffering, maybe I should just repent and move on. Maybe you know like Job, that's not how repentance works, but maybe what you think is this inner turmoil, this existential funk that I feel because of my sin, if I just repent, then God will re- re- change my circumstances. He'll magically make me feel better, right? Repentance can easily become a means to an end, but it's not. Yes, at the end of the book of Job, Job's fortunes change. And he goes back to being on the blessing side of life. But the Hebrew makes it very clear that his return to blessing has nothing to do with his repentance. But he is comforted through his repentance. Wait a minute, you might say. Looking at this passage, there's no comfort here. Nothing here shouts about comfort. Job has just admitted to God that he's done wrong. Right? He's opened himself up to prosecution and to punishment. And it even says here at the end of verse six that he repents in ashes and dust. This is why the Hebrew language is amazing. The word for repent here comes from the Hebrew word nechum. Probably pronouncing that incorrectly. That's okay. Nechum, right? Repent. It's also the same word that describes what Job's friends and wife tried to bring him. In Job chapter two, verse 11, it says, Job's friends come and they speak wisdom to him in order to bring him nechum, comfort. It's the same word. They don't speak and offer repentance to Job, they offer him comfort. So what Job is saying, it could be rightly translated, I despise myself, but I am comforted in ashes and dust. Repentance brings comfort. Job is comforted not by following the advice of his friends or his wife, not by justifying himself in front of God, proving himself to be undeserving of this incredible pain. He's not comforted by getting out of the suffering that he's experienced. He's comforted in the midst of it. Repenting to God Receiving the forgiveness of God brings to you a comfort that no relief from suffering could ever bring. It brings you a confidence and a security that no comfort of this world could ever give you, right? God's forgiving response to the repentance of his people uh, surpasses the, the physical immediate situation that you've got going on, right? Nothing external might change in your life. And yet, when we come to God in repentance, specifically admitting your sin, understanding the depth of how you failed, you see the height of God's grace, the height of his mercy, and the deep parts of your heart are encouraged. They're shored up, they're strengthened to establish you as you walk through whatever is going on in the midst of your life right now. It brings you a comfort and a security that you could never find from anything in this world, right where you're at, 
Repentance doesn't require that you clean yourself up. It doesn't require that you get all your words right, that you know all the words of the prayer, all the words of the songs. It requires that you come and you say specifically what you've done. You see who you've hurt and then you stay and are comforted. Five years ago, uh, someone that I was working with at the church that I was at previously uh, said some incredibly wrong things about me and our family to the people of our church, hurt us greatly, basically turned a majority of our church against my family, and then cut us off completely, didn't speak to us again for years. And after a time of looking for another call and then three and a half years, almost four years being out here working in California, God has done some amazing things to heal some of the wounds that this person caused us. And then eight months ago, I got an email from this person with the subject line saying, seeking amends. And I'll be honest, I was somewhat excited, excited that maybe this was the start of some reconciliation and the start of some deeper healing for our family. And I read the email, it said this, Stephen, I am writing to humbly seek amends. I was seeking connection and stability in our relationship when we worked together and then cut you off. I was fearful and then passive slash aggressive. This was wrong and I apologize. I am sorry for any hurt that I caused you. I hope you will accept my apology. If you would like to talk more, I am open. I read that and then read it again and read it some more. Talked about it with Nicole over the past couple of months and just felt something missing. I didn't feel the, the, the healing or the reconciliation I had hoped would be there, but I couldn't tell why. I couldn't put my finger on why this felt so powerless. And then this past week, as Nicole and I were talking about the sermon, about the passage, we were sitting there and walking through these points, saying what you've done, seeing who you've hurt, staying, not trying to get out of whatever's going on. And she said, this is, this is the reason. It's because none of those principles of repentance are found here. And in my heart, I realized I'm judging this person's repentance. And as much as I want to be able to write this person back an email and say, let me prove to you why your repentance was false, why it wasn't enough, why you need to do more, look at Job. In fact, here's a link to my sermon that will help you understand. As much as I want to do that, the reality is this is one sin of repentance for one thing that's been done. And yet day in and day out in my life, I, I disobey God. I choose not to do the things he wants me to do. I hurt other people. I am ignorant of other people. I neglect the needs and desires of those around me. And what do I say? Nothing. We don't even go so far as to write an email to seek amends. But what we see here in this passage is that God invites us into a deep understanding of our sin. Is it painful? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Is it awkward and intense in a way that makes us want to run for the hills? Absolutely. But it is so good because it is so freeing to recognize that God always meets repentance with forgiveness. It is so good to look at the cross and realize that God himself took on flesh, became man, and lived perfectly, and he died for you and for me. To know that when we come to him and say, God, here's how I messed up. 
God responds by saying, here's how I've taken care of it. Welcome home. Let's pray. God, this is, like most things when it comes to following you, easy to say, but hard to put into action. God, it's hard to begin to sift through how messed up we actually are. And so we ask that you would give us the strength we need, the boldness we need to approach the throne of grace. Help us to see that Jesus stands at your side, interceding for us, telling you how hard it is to follow the law, how hard it is to be human, so that we might come boldly and proclaim we have failed so that we might come boldly and lay hold of the promises that if we confess our sins, you are faithful, you are just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh God, we thank you for your son whose blood confirms these promises, whose resurrection from the dead tells us that new life is ours because of the gift of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.